You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Dr. Barry Schwartz, author of Why We Work and the Paradox of Choice. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. My collaborator and I, the point we were trying to make when we wrote Practical Wisdom is that algorithms, rules, standard operating procedures only take you so far. The world is a complicated place. Every situation is unique. You've no doubt done a lot of interviews. Every interview is different, I hope. Otherwise, you'd be bored to death. And so you need to be able to exercise judgment. But the last thing you want is putting people in a position to exercise judgment when they have bad judgment. And so what happens when people show bad judgment is you add a rule to prevent that bad judgment from displaying itself. And so what we have done as societies, when the healthcare isn't delivered the way we think it should be, when classrooms are not operating the way we think they should be, when legal advice and medical advice are not operating the way we think they should be, is we impose more and more rules because we are not willing to trust the judgment of the people who are offering these services. And the problem is, as you put it, Wisdom is something that's acquired through experience. Good judgment comes mostly from bad judgment and correction. And if you don't get an opportunity to exercise your judgment because you're just a rule follower, you'll never develop good judgment. And so there's a, a sense in which rules, structures, really constructures are an insurance policy against disaster, but at the same time, almost a guarantee of mediocrity. So you have to be willing to take risks. This in some ways is the opposite of the lesson of the choice book. People in positions where decisions have to be made need to be allowed to use their judgment. Judges need to be able to use their judgment in handing down sentences instead of having a spreadsheet that tells them how many years in prison each crime must entail. But if you don't get practice using your judgment, then you don't have good judgment. So I think the way you teach it is by giving people the chance to make mistakes and watching them so that you can help correct the mistakes. And over time, judgment gets better. And I think it's essential, particularly in domains in life that involve interacting with other people, because that's the part of life where the most variability, the most uniqueness creeps in. You know, you become a parent and you have rules. This is how I'm going to raise my kid. And your kid quickly teaches you that those rules are not adequate, that situations arise that the rules don't count for. Fine. So you get wise. Then you have another kid. And lo and behold, this kid's completely different from your first kid. And all the judgment you developed in raising your first kid has to be revised because this kid needs something different. And in the course of all this, parents make all kinds of mistakes, and hopefully none of them are catastrophic. And they eventually, if they're paying attention, they get wiser and wiser as parents. You know, capitalism, when it first developed, was a very significant part of life, but it wasn't all of life. In other words, it had its place, but that place wasn't every place. And what's happened over the years, what some people call economic imperialism, is that the incredible efficiencies of the market started being exported to other aspects of life. And so the classroom, you know, the educational institution is just another market. The students are customers, the professors are the retailers, and you operate to keep the customers happy. It wouldn't have occurred to anyone to think about education in those terms but it's increasingly become a market and you got to sell yourself. 
that means spending lots of money on things that are essentially irrelevant to education, that sort of make universities summer camps with libraries, and also catering to student demand. You know, you want to get to get positive course evaluations. And if that means assigning less work, making the class easier, basically doing stand-up comedy in the classroom, if that's going to get you good evaluations, which in turn is going to get you promoted and get you tenure, then what you've got is a market. And it didn't used to be a market. And you can see this sort of influence in the law, in medicine. It basically touches almost every aspect of life now because we've adopted the market economy as a model of the sort of high point of human endeavor, when in my view, it's a kind of deformation of the high point of human endeavor. And, you know, I've been worrying about this for 40 years, and so far, I mostly talk to myself. So I'm optimistic that there's going to be a sea change that tries to restrain the market rather rather than expanding it, because people don't live in a vacuum. People are heavily influenced by other people, and we're also heavily influenced by social structures and institutions. And that influence is so pervasive that I think it can exert itself without our even realizing. It doesn't occur to people growing up now that they've got a kind of market capitalist lens through which they look at everything. When they're trying to decide whether to form a friendship, they ask themselves, is it worth it to me to invest my time? in this relationship. Notice the language. Is it worth it to invest my time? And it doesn't occur to people that this is a sort of distorted way to be thinking about developing close relations to other people. It's just become the language of our time. So you get influenced by being awash in markets and consumerism without realizing that's what's happening to you. So that's a hard influence to overcome because you don't even realize its presence. That's what makes it so difficult for people to change. Well, so I have very mixed feelings about AI, and I think its future and our future with it is very much up for grabs. And here's the reason why. At the moment, these extraordinary achievements like chat GPT, I mean, literally mind-boggling achievements, are completely indifferent to truth. They crawl around in the web and learn how words go together. And so they produce coherent, meaningful strings of words, sentences, paragraphs that you're astonished could have been produced by a machine. However, there are are no filters that weed out the false concatenations of words from the true ones. And so you get something that's totally believable and totally plausible and totally grammatical, but is it true? And if AI continues to move in this direction, getting more and more sophisticated as a mock human and continuing to be indifferent to truth, the problems that we start our conversation with are only going to get worse because the speed with which untrue things can be put out by machine algorithm is almost comprehensible. And so you will be mostly looking for diamonds in a huge pile of coal because most of the statements that are out there won't be true, or if they're true, it'll only be accidentally true. So you'll have very little reason to believe anything. There have been a couple of cases, I assume you know this, where lawyers filed briefs and cited cases, 
And it turned out they relied on ChatGPT for a significant chunk of those briefs. And ChatGPT simply invented the cases. They didn't exist and they got caught. So this is a pretty horrible future to contemplate. But I don't want to suggest that you can't start imposing truth filters in AI that will, to some degree, ameliorate the problem. But at the moment, the systems are essentially indifferent to whether the text they produce is true. You know, what's good is that there seems to be a lot of concern about its future and the impact of its future. And it's pretty early in the game for that concern to have appeared. That's the good news. So there's an awful lot of room for constraining, regulating what ends up being produced. But regulation is only as good as its enforcement so that it's always going to be imperfect. And how much malevolence is out there? At the moment, there's an enormous amount of malevolence, either just to screw people up to achieve some nefarious aim. And it's hard for me to believe that the regulators will be able to stay one step ahead of the villains of the piece. We'll see. You can't make it not happen. So the only source of optimism is that people are early to appreciate that there are real potential dangers. When I started in the late 1960s, there was just a tiny fraction of the specialization that there is now. So education in psychology meant education in all of psychology, which is not to say that you were an expert in everything, but you knew something about everything. And that's just not true anymore. When you go to graduate school, right away you go into a lab and you start doing research. And you learn more and more about less and less as you do research. And the effort to sort of generally educate you in psychology has just disappeared, at least at the graduate level and to some degree at the undergraduate level. You want your best students to get into the lab as early as possible and work with you. And that's just within psychology. To be a good psychologist, you need to know a little economics. You need to know a little sociology. You know, there's history. There's a lot of other stuff you need to know. And all that gets crowded out too. So we are certainly not educating people to be wise. But there's a trade-off. The more time you spend getting generally educated, the less time you have to become a real specialist. And certain fields now demand that kind of specialization. So... You know, you can try dividing the labor and having groups that consist of some generalists and some specialists who talk to one another. There's a very distinguished anthropologist from years past named Clifford Geertz. And what he said is that human beings uniquely are, quote, unfinished animals. And what he meant by that is that we come into the world with some structures, some constraints, some essential knowledge, but very incomplete. And society completes us. And that is not true of most of the other species in the world. They come into the world a lot closer to being complete than we do. And this too is, is a skill, learning how to listen. It takes humility. It takes openness. It takes a certain kind of courage, because if you really listen to someone else, there's a chance that your view of the world will be changed. And this is not something that people are comfortable. So we say it's important to be a good listener, but I think we underappreciate just how hard it is to listen to what other people are saying. I think it's important for young people to understand that life is hard and that they need to be on the one hand ambitious and on the other hand humble because they are likely to make mistakes 
And every mistake is an opportunity to become wiser and become smarter. And the task is to try to make it so that the consequences of mistakes are not catastrophic, so that you actually get to live another day and do it better the next day than you did it this day. And I want young people to appreciate how much they have to learn from one another and from older people. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.